Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Special welcome to those of you joining online. It is great to have you with us today. If you are watching just the sermon, uh, know that our main text for today is going to be our Colossians reading for the day, which is Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 29. For those of you who have been in church for a decent amount of time, have spent time in your Bible, you know that the majority of what we call the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul. Many of them are what's called epistles, letters to churches, to individuals uh, that he wrote. Uh, and so the majority of the New Testament is by Paul, um, which sometimes is a bit frustrating. Here's why. Uh, so when you look at Paul's writing, he is a brilliant, brilliant person. Seems like a great guy. Doesn't matter if he was, because God spoke through him, right? But he seems like a very smart person, but I really wish he took more classes in language because sometimes his stuff is so difficult to understand what it means. Like you're looking, you're like, okay, well, what is, what is this sentence that goes on for like four commas? What is this actually about? Where's the subject? In the, like I'm trying to figure out the mystery of the gospel, not diagram sentences, right? And you're trying to figure out what he's trying to say. Your eyes glaze over a smidgen as you're reading through it. Imagine poor me as I was going through undergrad and then grad school learning Greek, and we'd sit there with our little workbook, and he'd, our teacher would go through it, okay, you next and next, and we had to translate like live in the room. I'd be counting ahead like, okay, it's seven, eight, and then if I saw that I had a Paul read, oh boy, just pray that that wouldn't happen. Like, Ed, you know, that was not an easy reading to read today when it comes, there's so many run-on sentences, it is so difficult to get through some of his writing. That's not to say it's not powerful, and it's actually kind of unfortunate for our modern ears and audience because there is some powerful and beautiful statements and imagery within the writings of Paul. And in fact, Colossians is even extra because they believe uh, that he dictated Colossians, that somebody else perhaps wrote it, uh, because there's a little bit different vocabulary. There's certain words, 35 of them to be exact, that are only used in Colossians and nowhere else. There's a strange syntax in the way that the, the sentence, so it's even more complicated. Um, so as you look through Colossians over the next couple of weeks, know that, yeah, you may have to sit down and kind of diagram what is going on here, and this clause relates to this. But today, we're talking about something very simple. And in fact, perhaps it's even too simple, like we hear it and we're like, well, yeah, okay, I know about that. Today we're talking about hope. But before we go into that, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this chance that we get to come together and worship you. Lord, I thank you for the chance to share your message, and I pray that it is your message. Lord, I trust that you will speak in powerful ways, and I pray that you would move me out of the way. Uh, Lord, don't let me get in the way of your truth. I pray that as we submit ourselves to your Holy Spirit, that we would hear exactly what it is that we need to know today. In your name we pray. Amen. So this past week, uh, as, as Pastor Jason kind of kicked us off with this series, I was serving at the National Youth Gathering. Uh, there were 20 to 25, different numbers, 1,000 high schoolers that descended upon the city of Houston. It was massive. It was amazing. It was so, 
just impressive and powerful to see. My role uh, was in a dinner area where about three to 5,000 kids were there, and, and I was essentially kind of the entertainment, if you will. And I, there was one night that I was sitting down, I was taking a little break, playing some music, and I sat down on the edge of the stage, and there in front of me were all these tables, you know, and there was a youth group sitting there, and, and it was like day three, as I recall, and the, the, the leader was desperately trying to get their attention. And the kids were having none of it. And so she's just trying to get them to pray the prayer before the meal. And she's like, all right, we're going to do the Jaws prayer, everybody. All right, you guys ready for the Jaws prayer? And like they were not interested in the slightest. And it's the God is good and, and we thank him for our food. Amen. That's the Jaws prayer. And these kids like were just like, whatever. And, and as I'm sitting there watching this, as, as she desperately tries to get them to do the Jaws prayer with her, I, I grabbed my phone out of my pocket, and I'm scrolling through Twitter, and it was right then that the video of the hallway in Uvalde was released. And as I'm looking at that video, and I'm looking at these kids trying to pay attention to this somewhat lame surface-level prayer, I realized we're, we're just kind of missing the mark sometimes, because these kids needed depth. They needed something that spoke to the pain that they see in this world. They need a message of hope. They need somebody to speak to them in a real, powerful way. And instead, they were getting the Jaws prayer. And I think sometimes we get caught up in, in our churchiness. We get caught up in, in making sure that everything is tame, and we lose sight of the fact that this world is hurting that there are people who are afraid, there are people who, who see the hatred, they see the division, they see the fighting, and they need hope, pure, unbridled, unfiltered hope. And they're searching for hope in any way they can possibly find, but, but there is no hope that compares to the hope of our God. And so we should be sharing it. What are we, the church, offering? So with that in mind, as we look at our reading today, uh, that Colossians 1, 21 through 29, Pastor Jason kicked us off last week a little bit talking about the church of Colossae, how they dealt with a number of heresies uh, in their community. Uh, there's a, one that the, the heresy basically was, to, to describe it, uh, the, an emphasis where they thought the natural world was inherently evil. And that in order to, to find something good, they had to essentially ascend to the spiritual world, right? And, and they, the idea was that, that with this natural world being so evil and the spiritual world being good, what they were ending up doing is they were diminishing the humanity of Jesus. They were kind of overlooking the fact that he was man. That's why if you look at our reading and you go to the section just previous to this, there's a whole bit about Jesus being man and how that's powerful, fully God and fully man. And that matters because that meant that God almighty, all powerful, left his throne room and became mortal, right? And it's with this idea of spiritual and natural that maybe you're sitting there thinking, wait, don't we believe that? Don't we believe that there's evil in this world and that ultimately we'll be set free to heaven? Right, but keep in mind, when God created this world, he looked back and said that it was what? Good. And it remains 
good. Yes, it's broken, it's corrupted with sin, but inherently this world created by God is still good. If you need proof of that, I got a chance to see the Lutheran comfort dogs. There's nothing that shows that God's goodness more than a golden retriever. This world is still good. But it's so easy to get swept up by the evil, by the hatred, by the the things around us, right? And so as we kind of keep that in mind, he begins this section. The Apostle Paul, the person kind of helping him write this, begins this section talking about, about hatred and division, right? This division that the people he's addressing felt within them. And it's believed that perhaps he's speaking to the Gentiles here, because if you remember, um, when it came to to the Jewish tradition, there were uh, the Jews, the people of God, the people of Israel, the tribe of God, right? That was kind of their definition. And then there was everyone else, and that would be the Gentiles. And what he is addressing is the fact that there's this, this cultural conflict for the early Christian church where they're saying, well, the gospel was kind of for us and for all people, but like we're not part of that tribe, so as Gentiles, how many of these rules do we need to follow? What, do, what does it mean to be a Gentile Christian? And he says that there is hatred and division in your mind. It was something that they were perceiving, that perhaps even the culture was creating. Perhaps that's you. You're creating division in your mind. You're creating division between you and the church, between you and God in your mind. You're thinking, well, listen, I've got too much in my life. I've got too many mistakes, too many red marks in my story for me to just be good with God. I'm not somebody who who has been in church my entire life. I don't even know what a Lutheran is. How can I possibly be part of this community? I I somehow have to, to earn it. I have to go to enough Bible studies. I have to go to enough Sunday services in order to fit in. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. That's in your head. In fact, he goes on to say that Christ came to reconcile that. It's an interesting word, reconcile, right? We talk about reconciliation in terms of relationships, right? But there's also a sense of reconciliation when it comes to finances. And I'm not a finance person. I'm a a words guy. When I start hearing too many numbers, I go a little crazy, right? Um, But from my understanding from Wikipedia of financial reconciliation, and somebody's going to come after me and be like, hey, that's not what that means. That's cool. That's fine. It's just a sermon. Um, (laughs) It basically means trying to balance things, right? There's a debt here trying to find a way to balance out that debt, to reconcile your books, your numbers, et cetera, to make things right, And so when it comes to reconciliation, if the reconciliation of of the relationship is between you and God, he, Christ came to reconcile that, to fix it, to, to bring peace into that. But if it's the reconciliation financially, we've racked up a debt of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wage, the cost, the price of that sin is death. And so we have a negative on our ledger. And Christ reconciles that. He balances out. He makes it right. And so we are forgiven. And so we have hope. We have hope to know uh, this gospel, this message of grace. But then he goes on to say if. Right? You you are reconciled, but if. Oh, there's always an if. Right? That's what you're thinking. There's always an if. Let's see what the conditions on this reconciliation is. Right? It says, if you hold firm and steadfast 
to the hope of the gospel. Huh? Not to the law? Not to how we're supposed to live our lives? Not to, to some moral code? The if that we're supposed to hold firm to, that this condition isn't about how we live our lives, how we act, how we talk, how we look? No, it's merely holding on to hope. Just hope. See, we constantly change that if. We add conditions onto God's grace. We say, yeah, 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 you're part of the church, you're part of Christendom if you act this way, if you talk this way, if you look this way, if you have the right past or you've, you know, done your penance for your past. We're so concerned with right or wrong and morality I've heard people say that, oh, we have to be harder on this sin. We have to decry that sin. The world is saying this sin, but we as the church need to stand against it. But it says hold firm to the hope of the gospel. That is how we have reconciliation. That is how we are set free through the gospel and the gospel alone. Let me say this. God cares more about your soul than about your sin. We say that again. God cares more about your soul than about your sin. In fact, let me rephrase that because I'm talking to a church right now. God cares more about their soul than their sin because we are really, really good about skating over our own sin. We're really good about saying, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and it's cool because God forgives me. But that person, oh, you should see the sin in their life. We're so good at creating the other, the other people. God cares more about their soul, about the fact that they know that they have a Savior who sets them free, that they know that they have entry into heaven by nothing that they've done. He cares more about their soul than their sin. What would it look like if we focused more on the hope of the gospel than whether the law is right or wrong? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. The law is important. The law shows us our sin, shows us how we have fallen short. Really, it shows us our need for a savior, right? Because you don't need to be saved if you're fine. You don't need to be saved if you think you're a pretty good person. You need to be saved when you recognize, wow, at my very nature, I'm rebellious. At my very nature, I do the things that I know that I shouldn't do. That's when you say, well, I need to be set free from this. The law is still powerful. The law is still useful, but it's the gospel that sets us free, but we struggle with that. We do because it doesn't make sense to us. We're like, hold on, he's just giving this away for free? This is America. You don't give anything away for free. I'll tell you that right now. And yet here God is giving us free grace, free forgiveness, free entry into heaven. If we're honest with ourselves, the statement that we should be making is, listen, if God can love me, God can love anybody. If God can love me with my mistakes and my rebellion, if God can love me with the things that I've done and the things that I think and the things that I want to think, if God can love me, then God can love anybody. But it is a free gift of grace that he offers to all people. For God so loved the righteous. For God so loved the church people. For God so loved the... LCMS Lutherans that worship the right way? For God so loved the entire world 
We are all together in this. God cares more about our souls than our sins. We do struggle with this idea of this free grace. And in fact, uh, theologically, there's a term called alien righteousness, essentially saying that it's so far outside of the realm of our mind that it is alien, it is other, it is something that we don't recognize. There are entire doctorate theses written on alien righteousness and this grace that doesn't make sense to us, this unconditional love. We're going, no, 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 put some conditions on that bad boy. It makes us uncomfortable, God. We need some ifs on there. But the world needs hope. The world needs to know the gift of grace that is truly free, the the hope of a better tomorrow where people can move beyond their guilt, the hope of people being unified, the hope of love realized in our lives and through our lives, the hope of true compassion. We need hope. I want to end with a story, a parable, if you will. There once was a farmer who lived on the outskirts of a small town. And a time came where, where a great famine took hold of that land. And a lot of the different farms and crops failed and died, and the people were becoming hungry. But, but this particular farmer, he had prepared, he put in the right irrigation, the right pest control, all those things, and so he was blessed with a bountiful harvest. He had fields upon fields upon fields of fruit trees. And as he looked at the people struggling in town, he said, I, I, I have pity on them, I want to, to help them. And so he built a little fruit stand on the side of the road, loaded it up as much as he could, and put a sign there that said, free fruit, All are welcome. Take only what you need. And then he went back to his fields. Well, it was slow at first. People only driving by. Then they started stopping. Before long, word spread. And more and more people came and and took that fruit. And as fast as they took it, he would replace it because he had so much excess. Well, after a while, there became such crowds at this fruit stand that, that there was fighting and bickering, as humans tend to do. People were saying, hey, I got here first. You took more than you're supposed to. What are you trying to do, buddy? And they said, we need some order in this thing. So let's, let's create a line, right? First come, first serve. The people who are here first, they line up there, and we can all line up. That's the way to do it. But then some disagreed. Some said, no, no, no. It should be those who are, have bigger need. They should come first. So they actually started a, a second line on the other side of the fruit stand, and, and these two lines hated each other. And then they started to bicker more and more, and they said, you know, we need more rules. How big the basket is that you can carry, how long you can stand there and pick out which fruit you want. There needs to be rules to this thing. And as the line grew, some people saw a business opportunity, and they said, hey, if you give me a couple dollars, I'll get you to the front of the line. We'll just skip right by everybody else here. But that just made people more and more angry. And over time, the people who were standing in the line, some of them had had enough. And they said, I don't want to be a line stander anymore. I don't believe in all this. I don't believe in the, the, the profiting. I don't believe in the bickering. I, I'm out of here. And so they left and tried to fill their bellies in other ways, and yet they were still hungry. But all those rules, all that standing in line, it had nothing to do with the fruit stand because the fruit was still free, and the fruit was still for all. My friends, the fruit is still free. 
we still have a God who offers grace no matter how many rules, no matter how many regulations, no matter how many obstacles and boundaries we put in the way of people in God, his grace is still free for all. My friends, my brothers and sisters, we have become Martha. We have become Martha so concerned with all the wrong things that we're missing out on what Jesus offers us, what Jesus offers to our neighbors, and they are starving. They need hope, and they're going to look somewhere else, but that hope is nowhere near the hope of the gospel. So may we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, actually follow Jesus, actually study the love and compassion that he modeled during his ministry to look past the pharisaical rules that we place in place. May we be able to live with the hope of the gospel, live through the hope of the gospel, that others may come to know that they are loved. There's hope, my friends. Together, with God, we can change this world. But we need to go with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.